Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Don Latin and host Steve Heilig as they discuss Don's new book, Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments, and the New Psychotherapy. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Hi. My name is Steve, and this is the new school at Commonweal, one of a long series in our 10th year of talks about anything that we want to talk about, basically, and if we can get somebody great here to talk about it, especially if they've written a great book. Today, we're very pleased to have Don Latin here. Uh, many people in the Bay Area, at least, and beyond have known him for a long time. He was the religion writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, Bro- also, broadly defined. Yes. <laughs> yes. Spirituality. <laughs> right. Um, and broadly defined partly because of the topic today. He was um, in the late 60s, early 70s, went to Berkeley where he reflects in his book, Psychedelics Were Part of the Core Curriculum. <laughs> yeah. It was a course requirement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that time, of course, and his previous um, best-selling book was about the kind of resurgence, the, the, up, the uprising of psychedelics at that time in the guise of Tim Leary, Ram Dass, and people like that. Harvard Psychedelic Club was the previous book, which was a bestseller. And um, now he's gone, taken it another step forward with this new book, Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments, and the New Psychotherapy. Um, this is a reflection of the real resurgence of uh, research and interest of people of both, of all ages, really, up to, you know, I mean, I was going to say people from a certain generation, but it's really come forward now in younger generations as well. And I was just looking, you know, I've got piles everywhere I go of magazines. So the week, which comes out every week, my personal journey on psychedelics, somebody wrote, Rolling Stone, The Psychedelic Miracle, How Ayahuasca and MDMA Are Radicalizing Treatment for Mental Illness, and on and on. I think Esquire had a cover on it. Um, Time has done them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's everywhere now. Um, one of the journals that I work on, I'm a co-editor of, Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, we did an issue just a couple years ago, Psychedelic Resurgence, Research and Therapeutic Uses Past and Present. So it's very timely. And we have someone here who has done a vast amount of research, both professional and personal, on this. And he writes about it in this book. And so what I think we'll do is I'm going to turn it over to him to talk about how the book came about and uh, maybe read a little bit from it. And then we'll have a dialogue for a while. And then we'll finish with some question and answer time. So please welcome Don Latin. Well, thank you all for coming. I wasn't sure who'd show up in the middle of an afternoon without us. so this is great. The one-time hippie uh, hideout. Uh, is it still a hippie hideout? Uh, I guess not anymore. Uh, <laughs> my, wife, my wife and I, Laura, who's back there, we know how to get here without the road sign, though. So, But I was thinking, do they have to now hack into the GPS to, yeah, right. <laughs> so people can't find Bolinas? Anyway, um, you know, it's it's great to be here, and it's kind of fitting to be here because Marin and West Marin, in in particular, uh, are scenes in my book in quite a few chapters. 
Maybe that's not surprising, <laughs> but uh, I write about both the therapeutic and the spiritual use of uh, M mostly MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. And I had some, uh, books mostly not about me, but I felt like I had to explore some of this territory in the therapeutic or spiritual context I was writing about. So uh, there's a, there's a, the epilogue, it's about a, a mushroom journey I had with a therapist, with an underground psychedelic therapist in Stinson Beach. Uh, I was actually just renting a cabin in Stinson Beach and she made house calls, which is nice. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a scene in here, um, I tried ayahuasca both in Brazil and in the wilds of West Marin, uh, the jungle over there and the jungle here. Uh, those were the kind of a couple of the underground things that happened in Marin. And there's a, I also uh, did a chapter on some research, a clinical trial, FDA-approved, government-approved clinical trial that's going on with a guy named Dr. Phil Wolfson, who some of you might know. He's in San Anselmo, and he's doing uh, a clinical trial uh, using MDMA-assisted uh, therapy for cancer patients, to, not to deal with the cancer, but to deal with the depression or anxiety or existential distress that can come from getting a diagnosis, which is often as serious as the disease, because people often re, you know, recover and live for years after that, but the psychological side of that. And then I also had an interesting three or four visits to a, uh, a church in Fairfax, which is called the UDV, which is a branch of a Brazilian church, and it's a real church where they use the tea, ayahuasca, uh, in their ceremonies. And it's the one place where it's actually legal for people to take uh, the tea because there was a Supreme Court decision in 2006. This, this church challenged the law and won the right to do this on the religious freedom grounds. But it only applies clearly to any of the UDV churches, which stands for Unio de Vegetal, which is Union of the Plants. Uh, they have a, but the funny thing about that church was they, they were much harder for me to get invited to than the underground illegal network. You'd think it would be the opposite, right? But they're not, they're very publicity shy, they're not looking for attention. So anyway, there's, uh, there's I didn't write about my experiences in that particular church because I agreed not to. Um, but I do write about the church in other ways, the larger UDV church. Um, so there is quite a bit about, about Marin. So I was wondering, what is it about Marin County? I mean, Steve, do they put something in the water out here? Or what? Yeah, I mean, where what, is <laughs> what is it? Oh, not supposed to say. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. The, we're now you're on a different continent, actually, from the mainland. So that's, you know, we're... <laughs> So first, two, two quick announcements. I, I regret to inform you there will be no free samples. People often hand it out at the end. And you, also you guys say, didn't drink any of the tea out there, did you? <laughs> and, and also, there's been some rumors going around about the book, and I really want to address those first. Uh, some people are saying that on the upper left-hand corner of page 108, <laughs> there are 250 micrograms of just pure LSD, and people are going into bookstores and tearing off. And yeah, the store can't send the book back to the publisher. So please, buy the book. I don't know if these rumors are true. I think it's fake news, but, uh, but before you tear off page 108, please buy the book at your local independent bookstore and, we'll and, have, pay, and pay full retail, please. We'll have I, some for I get sale out here afterwards, <laughs> too. And speaking of, yeah, speaking of selling books, my wife, Laura, and I will be out there, and I have some copies. Happy to sell it to you. Friends and family discount. 
20 bucks cash. We can even take a credit card if it all works, and then you pay the 20, $23.95 if you want to use a credit card. And I have a couple different brochures out there. If you're too cheap to buy the book, you can get a free brochure. This one is so long, someone said, there's too much in here. People will like read this and then not have to buy your book. But uh, anyway. Um, so the title of my book is Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments and the New Psychotherapy. And that involves, changing Our Minds involves a little word play, which you may have already picked up on. Uh, these drugs or medicines, uh, depending on how you want to describe them, when used with care, can really help us change our consciousness or at least show us another way to be. So that's the changing our minds. But the title also refers, as Steve was saying, to how public attitudes, media attention, government policy, the Supreme Court decision, times are changing. Public attitudes are changing uh, about the potential benefits of these substances when used with care, uh, at least in therapeutic or spiritual contexts. Uh, I wanted to start out by telling you a quick story about what my book is not about. Because people sometimes will ask a question, oh, I had a friend who took LSD in 1969 and never came back and destroyed his life. Okay. Well, uh, this book is not about the protocol, for instance, you mentioned I was at Berkeley when psychedelics were almost a course requirement. I want to tell you a little story about that because it happens. It happened in Marin. So um, uh, this is not what my book is about, this sort of thing. I was, uh, my first year at Cal, it was, nine, it was spring of 73, I think. I'd moved uh, from LA to study at Berkeley and myself and a couple of my dorm mates decided it would be a great idea at like two in the morning on a Saturday night, after who knows what we were doing, to drive to Marin County, drive up to the top of Mount Tam, drop acid, and watch the sunrise. <laughs> so we're, we drive across the bridge, we're heading up the mountain. There was a tail, we're smoking a joint, of course, in the car while we're driving up the mountain. And there's a tail light out, we get pulled over. <laughs> the cop smells the pot. I had a little sucrets box with three hits of Mr. Natural blotter acid and three joints. And I tried to hide it like an idiot rather than throw it out the window. Anyway, we got busted. Aww. And uh, wound up spending two nights in the Marin County Jail. But not just any jail, a jail designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> so, you know. And fortunately, uh, because we were white, upstanding, upper middle class college students, they never charged us. Wow. And we never did any other time. Um, and avoided being charged. Um, but I learned a few things since then. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was not exactly what I would call the wise use of an entheogen, uh, that little adventure. Uh, okay, so that's not what my book is about. What is it about? Uh, ch changing our minds, psychedelic sacraments and the new psychotherapy is about a sort of a new understanding about these, as I said before, how these drugs can be used for things like depression with a therapist, for, for depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a lot of research going on about doing using MDMA with a therapist. Again, clinical, clinical trials, government approved, including uh, Afghan and Iraqi war vets. Huge problem, you know, with, uh, it, it's the signature wound of those wars. There are 860,000 vets on disability for PTSD or related brain psychological. It's costing the government billions of dollars, which is the main reason they're open to this, because it's working and they're gonna save a lot of money. If, for certain people, it works, you know. Um, so, it's, so it's about how these compounds can be safely, insanely, and hopefully legally used uh, with a trained therapist or spiritual guide. And I really think that these plants and chemicals can heal the sick 
and be used for the betterment of well people. And there's other, other research going on, again, some of it government approved, looking at uh, long-term meditators and how their experience on med through meditation is different, mystical experience is different than on psilocybin, or if it can help someone with a meditation practice or not. There, this is actually research that's FDA approved going on right now at Johns Hopkins. They're even looking for five long-term meditators. I was just told by the by the researcher. You have to go back to Baltimore, though, if you want to be part of that. Um, so, uh, you know, these drugs can help people, but they can also be abused and harmful, just like any substance, heroin, tobacco, alcohol. Um, so about half of my book is really about the human stories behind these, these clinical trials. And there are some amazing stories of people who are, who are uh, being healed with these substances. Um, the goal of this research is to convince the federal government that these drugs should be reclassified. <laughs> Currently, uh, MDMA, the two main drugs they're using are MDMA and psilocybin, which is the MDMA, often called ecstasy on the street, or molly among some younger people. Um, that's mainly being used for post-traumatic stress disorder with therapy. And the other is psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So they're not actually giving people mushrooms, so it's a synthesized version of um, a psilocybin. And these are, you know, these are scientific, peer-reviewed studies, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, and uh, the two leading uh, kind of uh, research streams of this, the work was published just late last year, and that's in the book. The book is very timely. Um, front page of the New York Times, very positive story, showing that uh, these uh, medicines are better than existing treatments for some people, often the hard cases, the treatment-resistant people with PTSD or depression and, and, uh, the, and existential distress. So uh, most, of, most of Changing Our Minds discusses this, what I call this new therapy. I'm, I'm calling it the new therapy. Well, it's not really new. They were actually doing it back in the 50s when, before LSD was made illegal. But it's, it's kind of renewed. Um, and to understand, you know, we talk, when we talk about therapy, for, first of all, forget what you think of your standard, like, 50-minute hour with your therapist. I mean, these are sessions that go on for five, six, seven hours, which is about how long a psilocybin trip would take. They're supervised with a team of therapists, two therapists, usually a, uh, a man and a woman. Um, and the volunteer uh, in these subjects spends a lot of time listening to evocative music on headphones or, and, and blindfold, or not or eye shades, you know, to go within. And then we'll have ex whatever experiences they're having with the psychedelics <laughs> and then come out and talk to the therapist about it. Um, so how is this di different than my freshman misadventures? Well, there's some obvious ways. The first thing is what I, what I was doing in the early 70s was illegal, stupid, and dangerous. Uh, these clinical trials are government-approved, smartly designed, and totally safe. There have been no adverse outcomes yet so far, and they're talking about hundreds, uh, at least a couple hundred. Uh, yeah, and they're, well, they're very careful about who they pick. You know, then that's the other thing. I mean, that's the second difference. This whole new wave of psychedelic exploration is only done after the subjects have medical and psychological screening. So, for instance, you shouldn't take MDMA if you have a cardiac condition. The A in MDMA stands for amphetamine. Um, and it can be a problem there. And there should be some psychological screening. If you're bipolar, schizophrenia, it might not be a good thing for you. Um, or it might, but they're trying to figure that out. But... Um, the other, the third difference is, uh, you know, 
in a clinical trial or with a trusted underground therapist who knows what he or she is doing, uh, you are pretty sure that you're getting what you think you're getting <laughs> and you're getting the right dose. When you buy drugs on the street, you're playing Russian roulette. I mean, there have been studies of uh, what's sold as MDMA on the street, and it's hardly ever pure. It's almost always cut with something, often something more dangerous than the MDMA, and uh, often has no MDMA in it. Stuff that's sold as Molly or ecstasy, you know, at uh, raves or dance parties. Um, and the fourth difference is that when a guided session, you spend a lot of time after the experience talking. There's, there's sessions with the therapist before and after. It goes on for months. And you talk about whatever insight you got into your life. Uh, and, uh, says I went 10,000 steps and I'm just sitting here. Must be all this hand waving. <laughs> this is great exercise. You just have to wave your hand. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, you, it's, it's taking, the thing about these drugs, it's not really the drug that's helping you, it's the insight you have while on the drug. These are not like other drugs, like, you know, uh, uh, an opioid you take for pain or something, that's, that has a physical effect. These drugs, it's the insight or the illumination that you have which is important. And the late, great Houston Smith, the religion studies scholar who I write about in uh, Harvard Psychedelic Club, he had a great line about this. He says, it's not about altered states. It's not just about altered states. It's about altered traits. Mm -hmm. Traits yeah. of behavior versus states of consciousness. So um, I wanted to read a little... Um, Usually what I do uh, uh, so far at the readings is I read something about my personal experience because it, I think people relate to it maybe more. But I wanted to actually not do that, at least in this first reading, because I know you've worked a lot this, with cancer right? patients out here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to read uh, a section uh, about one of the, one of the uh, volunteer subjects in these clinical trials I've been talking about. And this is, uh, this is uh, uh, one of the... This is the uh, work that's being done with MDMA, no, I'm sorry, with psilocybin for cancer patients who are on depression or anxiety. And it's being done at, well, you'll, you'll figure it out when I read it, I think. I'm just gonna skip around a little bit, but. And this is from a chapter, chapter six in the book, which is titled Dying with Consciousness. Richard Cohn, a professor of biophysics at Johns Hopkins University, was depressed. He was having trouble motivating himself enough to get out of bed. His prostate cancer, first diagnosed in 2005, had spread into his bones. Physically, he felt fine, but on some mornings, he just didn't feel like facing the day. After one of his medical visits, his oncologist handed him a pamphlet saying simply, you might be interested in this. That's all he said. On the cover, he saw the words, coping with cancer. Richard put the pamphlet in his pocket and forgot about it. He coped enough with cancer. Back in the 80s, his eight-year-old daughter, Tanya, had died of the disease. He cried off and on for six months. His marriage broke up. Cohn survived that tragedy. He changed his academic focus and began doing research he thought could make, really make a difference in the world. He also remarried, became a stepfather, then had a second daughter with his new wife. Now cancer had come back into his life, this time in his own body. Richard sat in his bedroom looking at his favorite photo of his first daughter taken shortly before she got sick, gazing contentedly at her beautiful, at her beaming smile and a face that had just been painted with flowers at a neighborhood street fair. Mm -hmm. Then he remembered the brochure. He opened it up and saw a colored photo of a psilocybin mushroom. That's something, he thought, that I ought to try. 
Back in his youth, Cohn had been studying at Harvard in 1964, just after Timothy Leary was kicked off campus and the psychedelic counterculture was taking off. He may have smoked pot a couple times, but he was never tempted to nibble on a magic mushroom or drop acid. He was too serious about his scholarly studies, which he continued until he got a post as an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins in 1969. Quote, I was never part of the psychedelic 60s, he said. That was another world. I was focused on moving forward in my career. And then skipping ahead. Uh, so now I'm, I'm skipping ahead to him actually in his first session, uh, psilocybin session. Richard was lying back with his eye shades and headphones, enjoying the music. During a break in the playlist, his, guy, Bill, his guide, Bill Richards, had a suggestion. Would you like to try some guided imagery? Bill asked. Sure, Richard replied. Imagine a place you'd like to be, Bill suggested. Richard imagined a pristine mountain lake high in the Rocky Mountains above the tree line. Its surface was as smooth as glass. Do you see anything reflecting in the lake, Bill asked, or something coming out of it? Suddenly, in Richard's mind, mind's eye, the infamous agonized expression of the scream, drawn from the haunting painting by expressionist Edvard Munch, came rising out of the lake. Richard remembered that Bill had told him before he took the, what Bill had told him before he took the mushroom medicine. Quote, if a dragon comes at you breathing fire, don't turn and run. <laughs> Ask the dragon what he wants to tell you. <laughs> Richard understood the reason for this. Whatever visions came up were rising from his own unconscious mind. It was important for him to get whatever message was coming up from the depths of his psyche, not turn away. The scream was howling about a coming disaster. Richard didn't run. He took the hand of the screaming cartoon and helped it out of the lake onto a bridge and safely onto shore. Then Richard heard the words of his guide. Is there anything else in the lake? More images appeared. There was a treasure island pirate with a parrot on his shoulder. <laughs> then Richard's late father emerged from the lake, sitting in his rocking chair on his porch, smoking a corncob pipe, just like he did during the last few years of his life. It was a comforting image. It made Richard think about his own workaholic tendencies and how he needed similar rest and contemplation and how wonderful it was to be lying on this couch listening to music supported by two compassionate guides. But then he became concerned about how cold the water in the lake was, too cold to go swimming or even dip his toe in. Then he saw another man had emerged across the lake and invited him, him in. Then a whirlpool began to began stirring up the water between them, which turned into a violent maelstrom of bloody red water. His guide urged him to go into the red whirlpool, which sucked him down and down and down, spinning and spinning like a sort of whirling dervish. It pulled his body down into the soft, black, murky mud of the lake bottom, where bacteria started eating away at his flesh. Confused about what to do, Richard realized that if he walked slowly and softly enough, he, would, he could come out of the muck. He emerged, but as a skeleton, having lost all his flesh to the bacteria. Then he came upon another skeleton, and they walked together, holding bony hands. He wondered if this could be the hand of his guide, which had been offered to him earlier in the trip. Then he thought, no, that bony hand was nothing like Bill Richards' warm, reassuring touch. Soon the two skeletons began to dissolve into vaporous remains and were consumed by the seaweed. Richard began focusing again on the beautiful classical music coming through his head earphones. He felt like he was part of every musician in the orchestra. That's when his first daughter, his beloved Tanya, came to mind. She had been cremated, 
And Richard thought back to how all her molecules had gone up into the atmosphere to be recycled into other living organisms. It was at first a comforting thought, but soon shifted into a profound re-experiencing of all the grief he felt when she died. He howled, he shook, he cried, feeling the pain even deeper than when she'd passed away some 25 years ago. It wasn't just, but it wasn't just grief for Tanya. He later realized that it sprang from a new awareness of, quote, all the grief I felt for myself, for all my life feeling that I wasn't good enough, never feeling that I was a full and worthy person, close quote. Tanya's spirit also emerged during Richard's second and final psilocybin session. Bill had suggested that uh, Richard bring a few objects to the session that had particularly strong meaning for him. He brought a golden statue of the Buddha, a little golden, small golden statue of the Buddha, that he purchased it after Tanya died, and he had a powerful dream that she was a little golden Buddha way up in the sky. In the dream, Tanya let her father know that she was all right, and if he ever needed anything, she would come down to help him. Following a bathroom break during a second psilocybin session, Richard sat down on the couch and was getting ready to lie back and put on his eye shades when Bill handed him the little golden Buddha. What do you think of this? His guide asked. At first, Richard didn't recognize the statue. At home, it, the statue was down on a low table, so he was lo- used to looking at it from above. But now he, holding the Buddha, he's holding the Buddha right up to his face. What, and he, Richard says, quote, while I was holding it, she became animate, Richard recalled, meaning Tanya when he says she. If I'd stroke her cheek, she'd lean into my thumb. Then I stroked her other sh- cheek, and she leaned into that thumb. It was undeniable and remarkable. She was responding to my touch. It was lovely. It was a delight. I thought to myself, oh my God. When Richard and I spoke about this vision, it had been three years since his psilocybin session. Immediately following the experience, he recalled, quote, I was, in, I was ecstatic. I would say that in my life, I have never experienced or felt that kind of ecstasy. I was truly ecstatic at the end of that second trip. And then I just want to skip ahead, and I asked him basically how this really helped him in the long term with his depression and and dealing with his disease. And he says, uh, his memory of that wondrous feeling of ecstasy at the end of the second trip keeps him going. Quote, I'm going to die, he said. We're all going to die. Rather than be depressed about that, I want to continue doing what I enjoy doing as long as I can, the teaching, the research, enjoying my life. I guess the revelation is don't lament the fact that life is going to end. Enjoy life while you have it. So, I mean, that conclusion, you know, and in some ways, you know, live life while you can. I mean, it may may sound like a cliche or, yeah, we know that or something. But what's so important, I think you can get it from this reading, is the depth by which people feel this, you know, and the appreciation they have of these insights and the gratitude that they often often feel after one of these these sessions. Um, So like I said before, changing our minds is not about my trip, but I did think it was important for me to experience these uh, medicines and drugs in the setting as close as I could to the to the clinical trials. So, as part of my research for this and for part of my and for my own life, I worked. As I mentioned Phil Wolfson, who's a who's a doctor in San Selmo, and Jelaine uh, Andrews uh, to try ketamine, which is an illegal drug. It's not Schedule One, uh, but it has psychedelic properties when used correctly in the right context, and people are using it to get off antidepressants. 
I can talk about this later if you want. I don't, don't want to go into the details because I want to make this more of a conversation. But, but I write about that at the end of the book. Um, the book's about maybe 10% about my experiences. Uh, and, and ketamine, you know, like I said, like MDMA, unlike MDMA or psilocybin, is not Schedule One. So doctors can actually write off-label prescriptions, and it can be legally used uh, for psychedelic-assisted therapy and meditation. Um, so my reporting for this book took me from a Swiss neuroscience lab. I did there was a chapter on the science behind this, and I visited one of the leading science labs in Europe, uh, to Brazil for an ayahuasca session, um, and like I said, out to the wilds of West Marin. Um, uh, I also, there's a chapter in here on Ibogaine. Any of you heard of Ibogaine? Uh, Ibogaine is a, from a, it's a psychedelic plant from, a, from West Africa. It's the bark of the iboga tree or bush. And it's, it's, it's a, sort of like, you know, mescaline or peyote or, or some, you know, other naturally occurring psychedelics. Uh, except it has this unique property, and I think it really is unique, of helping heroin or addicts or opiate addicts go through the physical withdrawal of kicking in one night, wow. rather than a week or two of hell, which is why a lot of addicts relapse. Yeah. Um, and it only works with heroin or, or opiates. Uh, if you're an alcoholic, it won't, it, the physical withdrawal part of it won't, it won't work. It's, uh, so it's, it's, but it's a very, very difficult experience. It's dangerous. It's more toxic than other naturally occurring psychedelics. It's the kind of thing I think you really wouldn't want to do unless you're a heroin addict where you could very well die anyway from your addiction. Um, so anyway, I went down, but it's illegal here. Ibogaine. Ibogaine. It, yeah, it's, there are clinics popping up all over Mexico and Central America. It's, it's legal there. It's illegal here. As you probably have read, there's a huge epidemic right now of uh, heroin and opiate addiction. It's a major, major problem. And uh, this, again, this is not for everyone, even if not for every addict, but it, it has helped. So anyway, there's a chapter on this in my book. I went down to a clinic in Mexico, and I didn't do the Ibogaine. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Don Latin and Steve Heilig. Um, but they also use another, uh, as part of their treatment program, there's another, uh, have any of you ever heard of 5-MeO-DMT? Mm-hmm. It's actually the dried venom of a Sonoran desert toad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kid you not. They've captured these toads. They, milk, they don't even have to kill the toad. They milk the venom. It's squirted out on sheets of glass. They dry it, and you smoke it. And it's a naturally occurring form of DMT, which is why it's illegal here, because DMT is illegal. DMT is also the, the active ingredient in ayahuasca. Um, anyway, it's a f- so I did try that there, and because uh, it's only 15, I didn't have a lot of time, which is another reason I didn't do the ibogaine there. But uh, it's a 15-minute experience. It was the, one of the most intense things I've ever gone through. It was like being strapped to the side of an Apollo rocket, blasted through a kaleidoscope into this, ener- this space of pure energy. Just no body, no mind, no ego, just <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> It's actually kind of too intense in the sense that, I mean, it was, it was like a roller coaster ride, but it's hard to bring anything back <laughs> from it other than, what the f- 
was that? You know, I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's. I think maybe if you worked with a therapist, you could. But anyway, it was just. So that was another thing I, I tried. So I tried five or six of these medicines again. In, um, you know, I was I was going to read uh, uh, something about one of my other personal experiences, but maybe. I'll, uh, well, let me just let me just sum up. Then we can I can talk about that in the conversation if you want. I was going to talk about my my experience in Brazil on ayahuasca, but um, so I can read that or we can talk. Um, but let me just in closing this section. Let me just say that uh, these drugs are not for everyone. They're probably not for most people, and I am not recommending that anyone else take them. And that's not just a legal disclaimer. <laughs> I really mean it. Uh, they helped me find new ways to cultivate compassion and connection in my life, to remember how our lives have meaning, how it all fits together. Uh, this is something that I've experienced on these ketamine sessions, feelings of gratitude. And you know, the, what depression is, is you forget that. You forget how everything has meaning and how your life fits together. So for me, it was sort of a reminder of that. And of course, the trick, like Houston Smith said, is to go from altered states to altered traits, which is a much more difficult thing. Just ask my wife back there, she'll tell you that. <laughs> and, but you know, hopefully we all have a few more years left on the planet together to work on making that shift. So thank you very much for your attention. So I could do another reading, or what's the, what's the sense of the well, when other we reading? Do, we'll come to that, we'll see how it goes. So let me just, um, yeah. well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. And um, I found the book very fascinating. About 15 or so years ago, I was very involved in this field. So most of the names of people you interviewed, at least the researchers, are people I have met, known, and even published. Yeah. Um, and so there is this real resurgence of trying to legitimize the research on these substances to get them, get approved trials through the government, get funded, published in mainstream journals. None of that was happening for a long time, in part because, I mean, obviously because of the illegality, but in part because of a reaction to what happened in the 60s. Right. Now, you mentioned that the goal, the ultimate goal of this would be to tune in, turn on, and bill your insurance company for the session. Right, so, <laughs> right, right. That, that's Rick Doblin's goal. Yeah, yeah so that is, that's obviously riffing off of Timothy Leary's uh, slogan. And so can you say briefly, what was the problem that happened then? You wrote the whole book on the Harvard Psychedelic right, right. Club. So what did they do wrong that caused this long fallow period? That, yeah, well, one of the reasons I wrote this book, and I actually got the idea to write this book seven or eight years ago, when this stuff was really kind of newly coming out, was, was because of Harvard Psychedelic Club. And, of course, there was a huge backlash to what Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert did at Harvard and then took out into the world as, as Leary called himself, the high priest of, of the LSD movement. Um, and there was a, obviously there was a huge backlash in the 80s, 70s, late 70s and 80s to the whole counterculture, to the political aspects of it and the consciousness raising aspects of it. Um, and a lot of people say, blame Timothy Leary for the shutting down of, not, not just for the war on some drugs. You know, Richard Nixon actually declared Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> he would know, right? <laughs> <laughs> to which Leary, classic Leary line, replied, I'm not worried, we have America surrounded. Yeah. So, 
But, uh, you know, it's, it's easy. It's, it's almost too easy to blame Leary. I mean, you know, there was Ken Kesey, who was out here with the Merry Pranksters, and what they were doing was much more, quote, irresponsible in a sense. They were having these parties where people were being dosed, you know, with Kool-Aid, and maybe they didn't even know what they were getting. And, you know, Leary, they were actually were kind of scientists, at least in the beginning. They had medical supervision, you know, but Leary did go off kind of the deep end later on in the, in the, in the 60s. And, um, you know, they, I mean, you know, I interviewed Ram Dass for, for uh, I spent three days with Ram Dass on Maui for Harvard Psychedelic Club. And he said, yeah, we had charts showing how long it would take to, you know, turn on the entire country. And we talked about putting LSD in the water. We never did it, but, you know, we talked about it, you know. So, uh, uh, so there was a backlash. But since they came out of the university, see, that's why, so a lot of this, is, a lot of this work is universities. And it's NYU, it's Johns Hopkins, it's UCLA. Um, for years, the worst thing you could do was to suggest you might do a research project involving psychedelics because the ghost of Timothy Leary would pop up. So I think it really did have a backlash on the uh, academic community taking this seriously, and that took a long time. It took 40 years. I mean, they basically, it's basically this re there was thousands of studies and papers done on LSD and alcoholism and depression and in the 50s and into the early 60s. People forget LSD was legal until 1966 in California. And it, it, there was research that started, a lot of it was horrible stuff, but the CIA and the Army, you know, that's another story, in the 50s. But there was a lot of work into help trying to find ways to use this medicine. It was the Sandoz Swiss Chemical Company were looking for something to, some way to market it. So they were sending it around to anybody, any doctor who wanted to try to find a, a purpose for it. And um, so, I, you know... But there were other things going on. I mean, there were uh, there was also remember the thalidomide. Is it thalidomide? What's the, the thalidomide? Yeah, thalidomide. Yeah, there was a it, it was a there was a reaction to what, that scandal in the early '60s, mm -hmm. and so they used to be very cavalier about drug human drug testing, not just with psychedelics, but with any kind of drugs. So there was part of it was that. So there's lots of yeah, reasons. Yeah. But but if you wanted to find one person to blame in terms of the the in terms of the academic re reaction, probably. Yeah. Well, one of the other kind of the dark side for me of this, in a sense, is, for lack of a better term, grandiosity. And, and yeah. you mentioned the idea of putting it in the water. Right. Um, and even the interviews in your book, a lot of people, these are obviously very intelligent, you know, MD, PhD type people. You can see this. There's still this thread that, that happens a messianic kind of complex yeah, yeah. that if everybody would take this, we'd have world peace, yeah, you yeah. know? I mean, somebody here in here implies that if we could have stopped the Iraq war, you know, and all this. And I've always thought <laughs> yeah. there's something not yeah. quite right there with this because of the things you're warning about. A lot of people probably shouldn't take this and particularly not be dosed unknowingly. That's the worst, <laughs> right, you know? Right, right. But, you know, and the, the theme of a lot of the earlier writing on it was that you're trying to, if you do it right, you're trying to dissolve your ego somewhat. But some people, it has the opposite effect. Exactly. They get the truth, you know, but you don't see that as a risk in this kind of research. Or I do see it as a risk. Yeah? Actually, I think it's what's going to probably result in the backlash. Mm. And here's, here's why. You're right. No, these, you can transcend your ego and dissolve your ego on these drugs. You can also, they also increase grandiosity. I mean, you think that you understand everything and then you go out in the world and try to change it, often in not the wisest ways. And um, there are researchers out there right now who, have, who are pretty grandiose and they're not, and they're not being careful 
and they th almost think they're God. There are a few people out there, and everyone is holding, everyone in this research community are holding their breath because there have been this very strange wave of positive media coverage. Mm -hmm. And I, I've worked for the Chronicle for 30 years. I know what we do. We build you up, we build you up, and we knock you down. They're right there. <laughs> They're right there. And there's already a couple things that could come out that are not really serious problems, but could be turned into one. Well, uh, I'll tell you. Uh, there was one death in one of these clinical trials, but it was not... Here's what happened. It was uh, one of the double-blind placebo-controlled studies, and, one of, and there was someone with cancer and depressed, and they got the placebo. Mm -hmm. Not the psilocybin. <laughs> they got the placebo, and they got... And they were also a very irritated kind of person. They got the placebo, they got angry, and uh, walked out and left the study. And then later committed suicide. Mm. Obviously, it had nothing to do with the psilocybin, right? And they mention it in a kind of a footnote in the study. It's there, but no one really noticed it. And see, that's the kind of thing, if you wanted to stop this, you could pump that into a huge scandal. Well, it really, they never even got the psilocybin, so it's, you know, but, so, yeah. and, and as they expand this research into, and they're also, you know, there's, and I read it, there have been some sex scandals involving inappropriate behavior between therapists and patients, and that's in the past. That's always dangerous with MDMA, and people are talking about feelings, and it's kind of very sensuous kind of drug, and, you know, something is going to happen, and if it hasn't already. And, um, and uh, so those are two examples, and then that could be blown up, really blown out of proportion, really, because it's, you know, there are... Yeah. Hundreds, and, and what, what's happening right now is they're going from phase two to phase three of this research. And phase three is when they have to replicate it on a larger scale. So there will be hundreds of subjects on sites all across the country, and you don't have your A team in anymore. You're expanding it. And the whole idea is to show you can really replicate these successful results. And by definition, there is going to be some adverse reaction. You know, it's just, it doesn't mean it's not valid. You know, like Ibogaine and these Addicts die at these clinics in Mexico, and some of them are, they're not regulated at all, but these are heroin addicts who are probably gonna die if they don't clean up. So it's all, you know, you have, it's, you have to look everything in context, but it's so easy to, like yeah. I say, to make a scam. You also scam. mentioned the kind of the potential problem of basically, for lack of a better term, capitalism, that, that there is profiteering going oh, yeah. on, that yeah. there are people being exploited in South America, oh, for yeah. example. Yeah. Mexico possibly too, and that even the legitimate, if you're gonna pick two main research groups in this country, it's MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies and the Hefter Institute, and that they're in a race and a competition to try yeah, to, to who can corner the market on MDMA when it's approved, you know, with a lot of money at stake. So, right, right. I mean, do you see this as a potential problem, a backlash too? Or? I don't see that, the, the, the psychedelic arms race or whatever. <laughs> not, not a good analogy. Uh, hu hugging your, with your arms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's what MAPS no. is well, here's here's the thing. They're, they they maps is trying to they are trying to corner the market on MDMA because uh, which is not, and there's nothing wrong. They, they have invested twenty five twenty five to thirty million dollars. They will have by the end of the 
So, no, Rick Dobbin talks about this, and this, there's nothing, I see nothing wrong with this. They didn't, he didn't even know this when he started. There's an obscure FDA pol- Food and Drug Administration policy put in during Reagan. Basically, it says, these are not new drugs, MDMA, and they, uh, you can't really patent it, but there's something called data exclusivity. If you take uh, an existing drug and make a new medicine or new use out of it, you get a five-year exclusive right to use it. Mm-hmm. So what Rick Doblin is trying to do, and God bless him, is trying, because no, they want to, they, they, he's tired of having to raise money. All this has been privately funded. The government won't give, and they're letting it happen, but they won't fund it. Mm-hmm. So he has, this is very expensive. These FDA-approved clinical trials are very expensive. And uh, so they, he'll have a, he would have a five-year monopoly for using MDMA uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And so if, if you wanted to do that, you would have to, uh, and he wants to set up clinics, and so they would charge, most of the expense is the therapy, not the drug, the drug costs hardly anything. Yeah. But they would, just like drug companies, they would charge, like say $300 a dose for these clinics, and they would make money to fund more research. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, the 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 whole situation with the uh, drug tourism in Peru that's another story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I write about that. There's some huge scandal. I mean, it's I I tell even Ralph Metzner, you know, who was an old colleague of, of Leary and Alpert, he's still around. You know, he I asked what advice would you give people going to Peru to take ayahuasca. He said, don't. <laughs> and there was a death there. There was, and I write least, that there. I have a chapter one. where yeah. there's a kid. There's an 18 year old kid who died. They tried to cover it up. Literally, they tried to bury him. They buried him and told his parents that he wandered off and they never saw him again. And the parents didn't believe it, went down, found out the whole story. They shut the retreat. It was one of the most respected retreat centers. They were doing all this work with vets, with ayahuasca, called Shimbre. Yeah, that's in the book. Um, and, And you talk to women who've gone down there more than two or three times. They've all either been molested or attempted, someone attempted to... Exploit them while they were, you know, it's very common. A lot of these shamans, you know, there's a lot of con, there's a lot of good he- work, there's a lot of healing that goes on, but it's, I mean, it's huge business. These people go down and spend thousands of dollars to spend a week or a weekend, and these are very poor areas, you know, so suddenly the shaman has like the best house in town, and you know, there's all this, you know, it's, it's and in Mexico with these, these uh, Ibogaine clinics, and I write about that too, there's a, you know, these are, addicts are desperate, and often their parents will pay anything. If they're young, and their parents will pay for them to go to these, and sometimes they're healed, and sometimes they're exploited. You mentioned uh, the, the issue of durability of what you gain from this, how long it lasts. That's always been an issue with psychedelics and so forth, of people getting great realizations in the moment and then not right. being able to maybe remember them, but even if they do, <laughs> right. to, to maintain whatever benefit right. that they had. I mean, Ram Dass, of all people himself, even said, you know, the idea was when you get the message, hang up the phone. I you think know. it was Alan Watts, but... Was it Alan Watts? Yeah. Okay. I'm, thinks, I'm Better. pretty sure. <laughs> so he, he went on, you know, I mean, um, can you say more about, so these therapies are supposed to be limited, uh, single or a few sessions, mostly. Um, <laughs> is it expected that these are going to really, you know, maintain in in somebody's life? Well, that that is the tricky part of it and the difficult part of it, and they call that integration. That's the integration phase. And in the clinical trials, or with an underground therapist, you know, you go back and you talk about the insight you had and how you're changing the way you, say, relate to your spouse or your friends or your coworkers or whatever it is. That you, 
I mean, it's like any therapist. You go to see a therapist week after week after week, and you, you're working on this stuff. And so the psychedelics are just a tool. I mean, there's nothing good or bad about psychedelics. It, it's, a, it's a tool. And it's something you can learn something from, but then you obviously have to remember it, and you have to apply it to your life. So it's just follow-through. But, yeah, that's the, often the, one of the mm-hmm. critiques of this, and it's, there's a lot of truth to that. One of the um, interesting things that's happening now in terms of durability is people using these in some ways for productivity, for, <laughs> to make their work better. So, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. So one of the, the things that we're reading a lot about now is microdosing, right. taking very small doses, particularly of, of acid. And this is a phenomena also particularly in Silicon Valley where people do it where it gives them realizations and work more. The irony you note in here, part of that was, you know, the initial version or vision of people like Leary, et cetera, et cetera, was to get beyond capitalism and materialism. And so right, now it's, it's going the other way in terms of that. But you say with microdosing, there was a great, you know, you said, um, you know, there's um, no angels, demons, or out-of-body experiences, which, you know, kind of sounds like it takes all the fun out of it. But, right. <laughs> but, but can you say a little bit about what microdosing is and how that is playing out? Right? Yeah, I wasn't even going to get into microdosing in the book, I, uh, but uh, an editor uh, said I had to because everybody's talking about it. And I was very skeptical of it. Um, now, my, what microdosing is, is uh, you take, uh, let's say, a, a normal dose of LSD these days is 100 micrograms. Yeah. <laughs> See, you're, you're dating yourself. Back in the day, two... Somebody said, is no, that No, that is no, that is, that is not microdosing. <laughs> no, no. When I was taking LSD back in the day, it was 250 to 300 micrograms. Today, the, the dose that the, the kids today are taking is 100, which is enough you can go out to a party, and you, you know, you're not melting into Mother Earth and seeing God. You're having a good time. But, so a normal dose these days is 100 micrograms. And so a microdose is 10 micrograms. And the whole thing about a microdose is you're not supposed to really consciously feel it. It's subliminal or subperceptual. Um, but it maybe it puts you in a slightly better mood or increases your cognitive abilities a little bit or makes you a little more creative. But, you're, you know, you can draw, you're, you're not really stoned with a true microdose. If you start seeing colors shimmering, that's not a microdose. They say, if, you, if that happens, cut it in half. Take five. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's a lot of media attention. It's, you know, as someone who knows how we invent trends, in the media, you know, we call it the power of three. You find three examples of something and you have a trend. Uh, and it's the hot new business trip in Silicon Valley. And, you know, it just reeks of media BS to me. So I wasn't going to re- even write about it. But I did. And then I interviewed some people uh, who were doing it, and, you know, who said, it does, yes, it increases productivity and cognitive function and, in their view. And um, so, uh, and then I... Um, I actually know from personal experience, with, you also do it with mushrooms. I don't need to go into the details, but I, there is something there, I think. You know, it's, it's, the, the microdosing is one day you take it, then you take two days off. And then, the, so you would, every third day you would take this subperpetual. And, and so it takes you a whole month to do one normal dose. 
And, uh, you know, I have, uh, there, there may be something to it. It's, it's the kind of thing that really should be studied with a double-blind placebo-controlled study. Because that's the thing. It's, it's the placebo effect. I, I know I took a little tiny nibble of mushroom, so I think I'm going to have a better day, and then I have a better day. Um, that's the kind of thing where you could, and, and people are already planning this, uh, where you do a real study where you would know if you're getting the microdose or a placebo, and then you'd actually have tests of cognitive function. And creativity. And in a way, the double-blind placebo studies that Maps and Heft are doing is a total charade because everybody knows if they're getting the placebo or not. <laughs> you know, the researchers are not supposed to know. The subject's not supposed to know. You know. 99% of the time, you know. So it's really not a double-blind placebo study. That's why some people are against this research. It's like a, It's very expensive. It's treating psychedelics like any other drug you're developing, which is not what it is, but you have to do that to get the FDA to reschedule it. So they have, they're spending $30 million to prove what they already know because that's the way you have to do it. But with microdosing, it would be a great, actually it'd be a great study. And, it's, right. and people are, I, I, there's a Beckley Foundation in England, they just announced they're going to do it with LSD. So there may be something there, you know, maybe yeah. like an, sort of like an antidepressant effect, very subtle kind of thing, but you know. It's, it's That's like, why you need the research to find it's out. It's like homeopathic psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think in any of these cases that the substance taken in these short supervised ways is actually rewiring your brain physiologically, neurologically, or is it all psychological, both? You yeah. Know? You know, I don't know, and I don't think the researchers even know. That's one of the things they're trying to figure out. You know, you see these, there's this thing called neuroplasticity, where you're, the synapses in your, uh, are, are maybe making new, forming new connections with these drugs. Um, and you see these, you know, now that we have this high-tech, uh, you know, MRI machines, neural uh, brain scan, uh, brain imaging, mm -hmm. you see these very dramatic pictures of here's your, sort of the opposite of here's your mind on drugs with the fried egg and the fried, you know, it's like one picture is, it's all, your whole brain is lit up in red with LSD and it shows that you're some smarter and, and seeing God or yeah. whatever. And those things are often wildly overinterpreted even in some of the studies, sure, especially in the media true. coverage of it, the brain is amazingly complicated, and they have no—they really have no idea. They, they know that they, they, there's, a, there's a serotonin 2A receptor, and something happens there when you take a—you know—they know, they know that, but there's so many. It's such a, this interconnectivity in the brain is so complicated. They really don't know, which is another reason to do more research. But uh, and then how that affects behavior. Is a whole other thing, right? So they are just scratching the surface to figure this out. But some people say, yeah, there is a biochemical and even a, a rewiring. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I tend to think it's more of a. To me, it's almost more of a religious experience. It's a conversion experience. It's an insight. It's it's more. That's to, when it when it really works. I think that's what's going on rather than a rewiring. But mm -hmm. or it could be both. The 60s was the uh, rewiring. <laughs> yeah, well, some people got dewired, you know. I mean, we all have friends, right? Who... Some of us weren't even there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You wrote uh, towards the end of your book about your personal experience, not just with a specific substance, although we'll have you, you can read about that, the ayahuasca one, but you wrote about, you know, your own struggles with some diagnoses of your own or mental problems. And right. do you want to say something about how that has played out for you in, in this regard? 
Yeah, um, I didn't go into this with that intention at all, you know. Um, but I, you know, I was on antidepressants for quite a number of years. I was never like major depression, you know. I, but I was on, you know, these little pills, you know, and started in the 90s sometime. And, you know, I just kept doing it. And then, uh, so when I w went to Brazil, which oh, I also just, I wrote another book about this called Distilled Spirits, which is kind of a recovery memoir. I, I had uh, quite a few years of being an um, alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Mm -hmm. And I cleaned up 11 years ago. Um, so I know the territory of addiction very well. And uh, again, nothing to do with this because I was already, you know, eight, when I started this, I was eight years sober. Nothing stronger than a double espresso mm -hmm. until I went to Brazil and tried ayahuasca for the first time. And that's what I was actually going to read. So I can do that later. But I think what you're referring to is, so they say you shouldn't be on antidepressants if you take ayahuasca. That could be a serotonin surge. Mm -hmm. If it's an SSRI, I wasn't actually on an SSRI, but it, I talked to somebody who said, if you really want to be careful, get off the antidepressants before you try the ayahuasca. So I did that, and that was three years ago, and I never went back on. Um, yeah, it is cool. And, uh, and I was already ready to get off, and maybe could have anyway, so I'm not saying it cured me of depression or anything, not even close. And then I started feeling more of the ups and downs, you know, after, and I met a doctor uh, who was using ketamine to treat. I met a doctor in Maui, who was using ketamine to get people off antidepressants. And he said, one injection of ketamine, I've had people who are on antidepressants for years get off. And, um, and so I tried it, and that, that was actually before the ayahuasca, because I was still on them. Um, and that was the first thing, not the ayahuasca. And then uh, I did wind up cutting back, and then I did get off, uh, and then through uh, a doctor here in Marin, I, I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this, I, I just was interviewed today about this by somebody else, so I can't remember what I said then versus now, but, because <laughs> I suffer from CRS, you know. Can't remember shit. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, so I've been, I've been using ketamine uh, instead of antidepressants, and there are, you can do it at home with lozenges, with a doctor's prescription, after you're checked out with a doctor. And um, I have a, my own little session with music, and I read about it in the, at the, in the end of the book. With, you know, my own little 45-minute session once every week or two. And it doesn't last forever, but neither, neither do antidepressants. You take them every day. So, uh, and for me, it's been very helpful. It's been very helpful. And like I, uh, I, I mentioned without mentioning the ketamine, that it helped me to kind of remember how my life has meaning and how things fit together. And you, it's a little vacation from your ordinary you know, chattering monkey mind, you know, consciousness. Uh, but it's very subtle, and it's, you know, after, it take, it's an hour and ten minutes, that's my playlist, I've got my music, and I've designed it, the music is designed just things like remind me to be grateful. I mean, there's songs in there that remind me of that, or there's a song that reminds me of my father, a song that reminds me of my mother, there's other that's just sort of, you know, and any, you can, so that, I'm not recommending this, some people think that's crazy, uh, you shouldn't do this at home, it's dangerous, even people in the psychedelic world think that that's a little over the at-home sessions. On the other hand, Kaiser is doing this for depression. Yeah, but you have to go to the, you have to be more depressed than I am. You have to be suicidal and you have to go to a clinic, but they're hooked up for 45 minutes on a drip IV. And it's basically the same. You, maybe you get more of a psychedelic effect with the dose I'm doing. It's all dose related. But Kaiser is doing this, yeah. Yeah, most of these you have to have tried and failed the mainline 
uh, therapies. You have to be treatment SRs, resistant. Yeah, yeah, treatment resistant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I sort of, in a way, was because I kind of st- got off the anti. I was trying yeah. to get off the antidepressants. They weren't, weren't really working for me. So. Yeah, somebody else who was doing that it was similar with, with the the ninety minute uh, recording. They said that was like one Grateful Dead song. Right. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> are, are you, you don't even need ketamine with that. You're yeah. Just, right. <laughs> Are you uh, concerned about, you know, I hesitate to bring up, let's just call it the recent election. I mean, there's great fear of a backlash on drug policy in general and on these two. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. It's actually very funny that uh, there, there could be an unexpected benefit from Trump, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, there's Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general, who's this hard anti-marijuana crusader, you know, tough on crime, all that's happening. So that's there. But in terms of the clinical trials, which has nothing to do with Jeff Sessions, it's the Food and Drug Administration. You're listening to a conversation with Don Latin and Steve Heilig. Uh, Rick Doblin, who's the head of MAPS, the guy who more than any other person has, is responsible for this te- uh, campaign to reschedule MDMA. There's a new guy at head of FDA named Sidley Gottlieb, and of course his mantra is deregulate make it easier for drug companies to get new drugs to market, which is exactly what Rick Doblin is trying to do. He's trying to get a new drug to market. And he, and he says that Trump and this guy Gottlieb as part of the FDA could be the best thing that happened. For the <laughs> or, or there can be a scandal in the front page of the New York Times rather than a beneficial story, and it'll be an excuse for a backlash, and there'll be a backlash, and they could all get shut down. So that could happen too. It's the future we don't know. But it's interesting because you don't always know what effect right. something's going to have. There has to be a silver lining somewhere. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that could be the one yeah, silver lining. Say, just one. The one maybe. silver lining. Um, do you want to read one more section, whether it was on the ayahuasca thing first that or we before we go? Just, you, well, then we'll go to it. I mean, it's short. And then, yeah, why don't it's you It's about read? five minutes. Yeah, why don't we do that? And then we'll have some okay. questions. Yeah. This was about my experience in, in, um, in Brazil. And it's, ch- it's chapter 12, there's 13 chapters. It's called Into the Jungle. Two dozen, of, two dozen of us, dressed all in white, sit in a circle under an expansive thatched roof temple in the Brazilian jungle. Below our legless chairs, a patchwork of American Indian throw rugs cover a concrete floor. Above, a high-tech light and sound system has been built into the massive support structure holding up the thatch. Four pulsating globes of light dangle from the ceiling, like bright stars showing us the way. The circular centerpiece of this retreat center has no walls or windows, a design that protects us from the elements while keeping our connection to the natural world. We're less than two hours from Rio's chaotic bustle, but that insane, beautiful city seems light years away. Right now, we're deep into the night. The only sounds we hear are the hum and buzz of the jungle, a pulsating symphony composed of bugs, birds, frogs, and other creatures that call the rainforest home. Time slows, stops, starts again. It's been perhaps four hours since we took our first psychedelic communion, maybe two hours since the second drink. The men sit on one side of the circle, the women on the other. We'd individually approach the altar, alternating between men and women, walking up to our master of ceremonies, a man that I'll call Poim in this book. He pours the ayahuasca tea, a a viscous liquid brownish-orange from a glass pitcher into cordial glasses. The tea is room temperature, bitter and acidic, but we all manage to keep it down, at least for now. In an hour or two, another symphony will be performed as half of us start moaning and retching, vomiting into blue plastic buckets laid out for the purge. Mm -hmm. 
Poim has a mop of brown hair parted down the middle and falling onto his shoulders. He doesn't wear robes, but a rumpled white tank top over a pudgy body. He's more of a musician than a priest, more of a guitar virtuoso than a shaman. He's taken elements from the Santa Daime ceremony, but created his own liturgy, one centered on the healing power of music. He reminds me of Jerry Garcia, the late lead guitarist of the Grateful Dead, but Brazilian style with a white t-shirt instead of a black one. <laughs> Poems music is at the beginning of is at the Poems music is at the center of this ayahuasca experience. His steady guitar groove. This guy's a professional musician. He's a fantastic musician. His steady guitar groove beats uh, over the ever shifting Brazilian rhythms. His voice lifting, lilting, soulful, childlike. We sing from a hymn book in the form of call and response. Most of the lyrics are in Portuguese, but there's an English translation on the opposite pages. The hymns are in the praise of the forest, the spirit of the vine, the celestial mother, the great spirit, and other saints, gods, and goddesses in the Brazilian pantheon. Two men accompany Poem's amazing guitar with drums and other percussion. Three women who know the songs, including Poem's wife, sing into microphones, covering up our bumbling efforts to keep up. Most of us, visitors from Germany, uh, Britain, Switzerland, and the Czech Republic, and the U.S., stopped even trying to sing along when the ayahuasca starts to work its magic. After an hour or so, the music starts to flow up from the base of my spine, following a spiraling, serpent-like course through my body and outstretched arms. The music comes alive like an energy I can sculpt and channel by opening and closing the ever-shifting container of space between the palms of my hands. There's a visual pulsing as well. The temple floor starts to undulate in gentle waves. The various patterns of the colorful mats blend into each other and flow, and the flowing white robes of the women also take on a life of their own. Then the entire scene laid before me suddenly shifts and recedes into the background, then leaps forward into clearer focus, all at the mercy of my attention and the rhythm of the music. Later, at some point, my comparing and contrasting mind surfaces and starts to make its own demands. I recall that this is the same shimmering, psychedelic, ecstatic feeling of past journeys long ago with LSD, peyote, MDA, and magic mushrooms. My comparing mind looks for a cubbyhole in which to place this experience, but something about the ayahuasca makes this categorization impossible. I close my eyes, wondering if I will see mythic beasts or giant insects I've read about in other accounts of these journeys, or whether I will be led, like others, through ancient landscapes of crystalline bliss. What I actually see in my mind's eye are sparkles of light, kind of like a string of Christmas tree lights that beckon me in some inexplicable way to follow them into the swirling darkness. I feel an enlivening energy just speedy enough to remind me of a cocaine-fueled rush, and suddenly, all I want is more. <laughs> I feel great and want to feel greater. I want more visuals, more ecstasy, more intensity. These thoughts are familiar, but different. I follow the brightest of the lights into the recesses of my own mind, stopping at a place in my own brain for this conversation. It's like my brain is split into two and my addict brain is having a conversation with my higher brain. I'm just sitting there listening to the dialogue. My ayahuasca experience is subtler than I had imagined. I begin thinking of the second drink. Suddenly I realize that this, this addictive pattern and step back from myself like a scientist studying my own mind. Why do I want more? This craving takes me away from the experience not further into it. This will be the lesson my teaching from the tea to explore with greater subtlety and clarity the nature of this desire. Throughout these reveries, the music of the circle has continued, mostly in the faint background. Poem and company are, have been proceeding along with the program, going from one hymn to the next. The Portuguese lyrics call out in a way beyond my conscious understanding. One chorus stands out, and excuse my Portuguese, which is not even anything close to Portuguese, but it's something like, 
Belleja flor de amor moleva, coma o vent lavo a foja. I later, <laughs> I later learned that this, that in translation, this is, the hummingbird of love takes me like the wind carries the leaves away. But in, my, in that moment, my mind my, turns the lyrics into my own mantra, because amor is one of the words, right? Not more, but amor. Not more, but amor. Not more, but amor. More love is what I need. Not more drugs. More love is what I need. Not more drugs. So the dream is uh, Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD. His book and his uh, memoir was My Problem Child. And that before he died at 101, two years old, he said, I hope my problem child can become a wonder child. (laughs) And he microdosed. Yes. Apparently, for his whole life. So, thank you very much. We have a little bit of time for some question and answers, and please make them questions, not talks, if you can't. Stories, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we don't want stories. (laughs) We can get... Right, go ahead. Uh, The experimentation in the 60s was done by so many people, and contrast to what this clinical new idea of trying to heal and experiences... Um, did you go into the stories and experiences that people were doing their own research on themselves, their friends, and also large amounts of people, maybe seven or eight times more here, all on LSD without knowing it? <laughs> it's kind of a question. Masses of people. Are kind of a question. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't really I mean, am I comparing this to the broader psychedelic counterculture of the good old days? Is that what you're talking about? Or? Well, yeah, because uh, within those experiences, the catalyst of a personal catalyst for your own evolution. Right, right. Oh, yeah, I understand, I understand. Uh, okay. the, the, the answer is no. I, I, I don't really get into that in this book. I wrote two other books. I, the Harvard Psychedelic Club, I, I talk about sort of the, some of the broader social ramifications of the psychedelic counterculture, mostly positive, uh, environmental movement, things like that. Uh, um, and I wrote it, my, my, my first book all on my own, my, my second book, called Following Our Bliss, How the Spiritual Ideals of the 60s Shape Our Lives Today. And I write a lot about that in, in that book. Uh, uh, but I didn't so much get into it here because I'm just trying to tell a more limited story here. In those books, did you take the Castilla Foundation and the roots of Leary, Albert, and Metzner? A little bit, yeah. That yeah. And, and in Harvard Psychedelic Club. Yeah, it's a whole book about it. Yeah. yeah. Back uh, two. One reason I didn't get into it here, I'd already sort of done it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that uh, it's inadvisable for somebody with a history of heart trouble to take uh, uh, ecstasy. Uh, uh, do you know about the uh, whether there's a danger of people with mild arterial sclerosis to take either acid or, or psilocybin? I, I, I don't. I, I could guess, but I probably shouldn't. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, but um, you could find out. I mean, there you could do the research. Where would you find out? <laughs> um, well, I would probably do a Google search and see what I could find on a reputable, you know, a, a site that had medical advice. Or there's a site called Erowid, E-R-W-I-D, which is drug information, erowid.org or com, E-R-O-W-I-D. They're, they're pretty good. Um, 
If you want, I could, uh, if it's something that's really important to you, I could maybe give you an email, some, one of the researchers who could probably help you. But I really don't want to give any medical advice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, um, you mentioned insights, and uh, it's interesting to know that you were the religious writer. For religion. The yeah. religion writer. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, could you bring us up to date right now as far as contemporaneously how psychedelics have affected your religious or spiritual insights? Mine personally? Yeah. Well, I mean, where are you now? If you say life is a quest, where are you now in your quest? In a sense. Well, you know, it's like one of the reasons I, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, I, I was a reporter covering other things before I became the religion writer, and it was actually People's Temple in Jonestown, which was what kind of got me on the religion because there, there was no one at the paper doing that at the time, and it's one reason Jim Jones was able to get away with what he got away with. People, for, people forget that he was looked at as like Cecil Williams, as a progressive, you know, mainline minister. Anyway, but the, another reason I got interested in meditation was because of experience, spiritual experiences I had, mystical experiences I had on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I wound up writing a lot, as much as I could, <laughs> about that. I was supposed to be covering everything, you know, from the Pope to, you know, whatever. But, um, so, and, and, but for then, for many, many years or decades, I didn't do any psychedelics. I mean, even before, long before I stopped the alcohol and cocaine, I'd stopped pretty much doing psychedelics. Um, and, uh, so now it's interesting because I'm uh, I'm done with the book, so I should probably not be doing this anymore. If, if that was that, if the reason I was doing it was research, <laughs> why am I still taking ketamine or some other things occasionally? And for me, I think I think it's a lot of people in my situation. You know, people who had some insights back in the day, and now they've raised a family. They've you know they're maybe starting to retire. They're starting to think about death, and so finding a way to safely and sanely and cautiously bring some of the these experiences back. Uh, for me, uh, it's, it's been, I, I can see that happening. And, you know, I have so much more life experience to draw on now. I mean, some, including some real advocates of this, like uh, 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 Ann Shulgin, so the late Sasha Shulgin's uh, widow, the chemist who invented a lot of these uh, drugs people are using today, or popularized them. She says now no one under 25 should ever take a psychedelic, is her, you know, view. Because you don't have the experience. It's not so much your brain is informed and you're going to do some damage. You just don't have the stuff of life to make use, good use out of it. You know, of course, that's not something people under 25 probably want to hear, but, and I wouldn't have listened to it myself if I. <laughs> you know, just when you said that, it's an interesting thing because one of the things that I've read about Ibogaine is that when it was used um, in West Africa, it is used as a. Um, rid of initiation mm -hmm. for adolescents. Mm -hmm. And in some tribes it's both boys and girls and in others it's just boys. But um, it's right around the age of 13 and what they say that it does for them in that situation is show them a life purpose because yeah. it takes mm -hmm. them on the journey of their life up to that point. Mm -hmm. Which I think would be I don't know what they do with yeah. The so so yeah, but that's that's different because you're in a culture yeah it's where, a culture. where where it's it's really part of the culture and the religion. You're, it, it, it's different than being a young person just going out to a party. Right. Yeah. We don't know? even have any rights. So uh, 
Yeah, um, and in terms of, yeah, now it's being used mainly for heroin because it, it has this amazing property for the withdrawal. But it, it's a psychedelic, so you can use it for any reason you take any psychedelic for insight. Or, I, I, could see how it could, I could definitely see how it could be used that way. Well, I mean, I could see how psychedelics could be used this way, not just in a therapeutic situation, but in terms of giving someone real life experiences that yeah. would be... You mean a young person. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think 25 is necessarily a cutoff point. I find it interesting that... But I think that if we were to look and research and all of this, that it's under uh, very guided circumstances could be really useful yeah. for young people. I think she was mainly talking about the way young people take yeah, psychedelics right. now, like, you know, at Burning Man or, or at parties or whatever, you know. Again, I don't think there's anything probably wrong with that. It's just that was her. That's not. That's not. I'm not saying I believe that, but that's which. I, I could believe that, but I yeah, just think yeah. that if we were to look at it in these more yeah, yeah. circumstances, there's. Um, my granddaughter works for Maps for quite a long time, and um, she told me one time when I was asking her what it's all about to go to a TED talk. Uh -huh. that they have, which I recommend for everybody. It's really interesting because it talks about how they deal with PTSD and right. they actually have clinical trials and they have people interviewed. It's it's short and it's it's really interesting. Yeah, the, the work with, the first chapter of the book, which I didn't really talk about, I read it from, is about, uh, it's a profile of, a, of an Iraqi war vet mm -hmm. who was healed with PTSD and it's a, it's a very incredible story. This was a guy who accidentally, during a firefight, uh, uh, killed two little girls, and um, and then also had his friends all blown to pieces too. His comrades, but the you know this truck was coming at him, and they wouldn't stop, and they opened fire, and it was this guy with his two daughters, and the guy survived, but the two little girls were were, and he's just the scene of seeing that carnage in that guy's truck, and watching him, the father take these little girls and carry the bodies away, and and they was purposely misdiagnosed by the VA which was doing this during the Bush administration because they didn't want to pay disability payments classic PTSD syndrome misdiagnosed seven years of hell finally found the MAPS program and was uh, so his name is Nigel McCurry and uh, there's a picture of him in here and uh, he's uh, that's why I started the book out with that that story yeah. <laughs> First, um, thank you very much yeah. for your work. And what um, surprises me also from uh, reading about this research is the way that it's kind of been um, codified that the approach is to do the music and the uh, right, eye covers. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering how that um, came to be yeah. and if there is any uh, research into alternative forms of research or yeah, of yeah. experience. Good question, yeah, good question. Uh, it, I, I can trace it back to this very mysterious uh, character named Al Hubbard, Captain Al Hubbard, who was probably originally CIA, doing CIA, uh, nefarious CIA research with LSD in the 50s. And uh, he worked for the OSS during the war, which is the precursor to the CIA. And, but he also was kind of a religious guy, and he thought that LSD was God's gift to humanity mm -hmm. to show them the way. And so he left the CIA and he later said that the CIA work stinks, they don't understand it. And he was sort of the original Timothy Leary. And uh, he, uh, some people call it the Hubbard method. And it was 
it was really in the 50s, like mid-50s, that uh, they started doing this. And he worked with alcoholics at uh, a hospital in Vancouver called Hollywood Hospital. I actually have a friend named Dick Hogren, who I, is an old Chronicle reporter, who actually did a Hubbard session in 1959. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he's, and he's in the book. Uh, and so that's kind of, I think, where it started. And it's, you, but you can look back at, there was a, there was a, before 60 Minutes, there was a CBS special reports show. You can find it online about LSD research. And this was 1965. LSD was still legal. And it was exactly what they're doing now. You know, music, look at a rose, you know, it's exactly the, there was a little more physical contact between the therapists then. They were hugging, which they wouldn't do now because of, you know, it's apparently about touching anybody, especially of the opposite sex. But uh, other than that, it's, it's very similar. And it's a good question. Why do they do it this way? I mean, it's, I guess they found that it works for certain things, but, you know, you can also have a beautiful experience in nature. And, but that's, see, if you're worried about somebody like, falling down or falling off a cliff. or it, They're trying to make it as safe as possible because the last thing they want is a bad outcome because it could shut the whole thing down. So they, they talk about in the future having retreat centers like an Esalen type place where you would go and do this and then you could go for a little walk, yeah. you know, in the woods, you know, with somebody holding your hand. You know, they just, they're trying to be safe is really kind of one of the reasons for that. And that it, it, it's kind of going within and coming out and, you know, there's, it makes sense, especially if you're dealing with, you're doing therapy. In the back. Quick question about uh, the psilocybin. Are they, uh, are they reproducing like magic mushrooms or are they taking magic mushrooms? The, the psilocybin that they use in the clinical trials is synthesized psilocybin. The same guy who, in, who discovered LSD, Albert Hoffman, the Swiss chemist, is a guy who first synthesized psilocybin, which was later in 1958. So, but it's the same, pretty much, I'm told, it's, I've never done synthesized psilocybin, but I'm told that the effect is identical or very similar, the actual um, mental effect. And the reason they use the synthesized is because they can exactly control the dose. Um, uh, but uh, like I said, I'm told it's pretty much the same experience. Some people think it's, it's always better to use the natural, you know. But, right, because uh, I'm wondering about the addictiveness of because I don't think it really is. I don't think psilocybin is addictive. No. Some people take like 10 hits of acid when they go to the Anyway, acid, if you take a lot of it, you just don't really get, at a certain point, you don't yeah. get any higher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Leary and Alpert did a lot of experiments yeah. with that. <laughs> so, I, I share your... Um, disdain for the productivity of the whole Silicon Valley thing. But I'm a little surprised. I found I let Walden's A Really Good Day really compelling. For those of us who are just, you know, insight is fine, but for those of us who are just trying to maintain, it made sense to me what she was saying, and I'm hoping you can sort of catch us up on what's happening specifically with the microdosing research at this point. There really isn't any. They're just starting it's, about. Do, they're just talking about starting it. Okay, so at this. Moment, you mean research like double blind placebo? Well, there's a guy named Jim. Okay, okay. Well, No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not as skeptical as I want. As I sort of tried to gingerly explain, I'm not as skeptical as I once was about the value of microdosing. Well, you, you were. It sounded dismissive to me, and I was surprised because, for the especially for someone who's had your own experiences with yeah. antidepressants, it's like, doesn't this seem like a yeah. possibly better idea? Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm not as skeptical as you think I am, and I was a little hesitant to talk about 
something that's going to be on um, Very the internet. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. I'm saying. I'm saying that. Um, the, the only research that there's a guy named Jim Fadiman who was sort of the guru of Eilat Waldman. Right. And it was actually this guy Robert Forte who who told Jim Fadiman that Albert Hoffman used to microdose, and it goes back that way. But anyway, the guy who popularized or has helped popularize before Eilat Waldman was Jim Fadiman, who was her consultant on that. Right. She writes about him in the book, and right. I've interviewed her too. Um, and so, Jim Fadiman has been collecting individuals' accounts. Of microdosing, and there's a, that's the that's this format of one day with a tenth of a dose, two days off. You're supposed to write, you take it. There's questionnaire, but it's all self-reporting. Right. I mean, it's not that it's not valid, but it's not a double-blind placebo study. Right. And it is the kind of thing where you it could be a placebo effect. And what Fadiman says, so what? Exactly. <laughs> he, he, he said to me, I kept saying placebo. placebo. He'd, he'd say, Don, take the word placebo and replace it with natural healing response. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, a lot of placebo, placebo effects are real. <laughs> so, but still, it would be nice to know, you know, with a, it would be interesting to find out if you actually, because these people are not doing cognitive tests. They're, they're saying they feel a little smarter that right. day. You know. So, again, I'm, I'm not so interested in the smarter. It is... It is you know, the, the, the mood, feeling. the mood, well, the mood. Right. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. No, I, 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 have a, I have a feeling. Don't ask me why. That microdosing magic mushrooms can be more effective than antidepressants. So, <laughs> don't ask go, me let's, why. I, let's go to one more here. We're at, we're on time here, so. I just, uh, sort of thinking about this through everybody's comments, and um, is there a sort of inherent conflict um, with studying this kind of medicine this way? There seems to be a sort of agreement of sentiment, um, among many of us at least, that, that, that there's a, a very mysterious and, and indeed spiritual aspect to, right. to these kinds of drugs and medicines. And it kind of occurs to me sometimes when talking about it in this way that maybe we're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole with approaching I agree. clinical uh, uh, studies that are defined by a whole other way of thinking that these sort of medicines help us break out of. I, I, right, I, no, no. There. I go, so I guess I just wonder if you could expand on that. I, I think Are you're, I think you're making a good point. Benefit or detriment, you know? Well, I, like I, I think I explained, tried to explain before. I mean, I have a chapter, a chapter called "Mindsets and Minefields," where there's a, a, there's a critique of this whole medical. It's basically the medicalization model, right. mm -hmm. and and, uh, there, and 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 profit off it, you know. Right, but the 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 real reason they're doing the medical model is that they have to do that mm -hmm. to get the drugs rescheduled right. so people can legally use them, right. mm -hmm. and it's a lot like the whole medical marijuana, excuse me, charade. Uh, most of the people who are taking medical marijuana are not taking it for medical reasons. Sure. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Maybe but, nine, I don't know the percentage, but a lot. Okay, and but that showed people maybe marijuana's not so bad, and then it led to recreational legalization. So some people, like Rick Doblin and Maps, are uh, totally honest and upfront that this is a step towards legalization, that we have a basic human right to alter our consciousness. <laughs> it's cognitive freedom. And the government should, as long as we're not hurting anybody else, the government shouldn't be telling us what we can, you know. But there is a real world out there in terms of the law, and and it's it's a it's a tactic. 
is all it is. It answers the question of like if we have this very prescribed method with the eye mask, and yeah, the yeah, and it, it's all written down, and maybe like yeah, but that's only one way. It's just the way that they're trying to get it, it decriminalized. Yeah. And and the other thing is, yeah, you know, I read that thing from the guy or the the one thing I read about the, uh, the professor at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, it's a he's but he's having a spiritual experience, right? I mean, that's what people are having. <laughs> it's medicalized, but it's. It's a spiritual experience. So the book is Changing Our Minds. We're going to have copies out here. You can ask him questions while you're getting a book signed that'll be off the internet if you want. <laughs> I'll tell you the real story out yeah. there. <laughs> so Don Latin, thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation with Don Latin and Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.